two guests this week so i'm not going to go through the motions of saying where we say the quiet part out loud even though that's what you know that the rabbit hole ramble is so i have to my left i have christy which you guys met her a couple episodes ago and i would agree that you say the quiet part out loud even when it should be silent yeah she wanted to change she wanted to change our tagline and i was like nope nope sometimes you say things maybe you shouldn't (laughs) it's true and then we have our uh, another guest with us, which you guys have met her before several episodes ago. Uh, this is Swapna Deshpande, right? Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, thank you for having me. Yes, great to have you back. Um, you have been one of our most um, talked about guests um, in recent uh, podcasts. And so uh, everybody's like, when are you going to have Swapna back? When are you going to have Swapna back? And I was like, well, she'll be back eventually if I can convince her to come back. <laughs> <laughs> so, so really good to have you back. Uh, with us. And I think it's very helpful. What we talked about last time was very helpful uh, with the Valley of the Flowers and the discussion of pausing and um, enjoying wherever you are. And so great to have you back. Thank you so much. What's been your um, experience after recording the podcast, even with people that you've talked to? You made your kids listen to it, which is funny. I've made my kids listen to it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, kids are your toughest critics and your best supporters. Yeah. So, of course, they adore me, love me, and also tell me that, hey, this, they tell it to me like it, like they, they say things straight. They, <laughs> they are not mixing words. So, so my, one of my kids said, you laugh too loudly. <laughs> so, I'm going to try our hardest <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> to laugh less loudly today. <laughs> well, I don't know if you can keep it from it. Yeah, you, you don't know if you can help it because that's who you are. <laughs> so. <laughs> I, I, I do take constructive feedback. Okay, that's good. That's good. <laughs> Better than I do. What, what it, so your kids gave some pretty good feedback. Yes, actually, they said you just sound like yourself. So this information is not new to us. And they were really happy that I did it. And yeah. then I've also really um, given it to people who I thought would be, would, would uh, somehow find some use in it. So... The last podcast actually talked about two things. My personal story of kind of where I started and how I came to be where I am. Right. And the other part was being kind to yourself mm-hmm. and being self-compassionate and um, not having too many goals. Uh, I mean, not having too many goals that not killing yourself for your goals. Maybe let me say yeah. it that way. Mm. So having goals is great, but if you find yourself being killed in the process, then you really need to pause and see whether the goal is worth dying for. Right. Like, Do you not think that's ev- an identity thing? Like, like a lot of people get their identity in their goals and accomplishments instead of who they are? Oh, so true. That's a great yeah. point. I, I like how you framed it. So I'm a doctor. Right. I'm a mother. Right. I am a researcher. And if I fail at any of those things, I f- it feels like I'm failing in life. Mm which is not really true right if we would have hit record just 30 seconds before we would have heard an explanation about your kids our kids think we're weird that's just who <laughs> who that's what just how life is right uh, we have a teenager uh, and a 10 year old uh, you have two boys and our kids think we're weird 
And you said something very, uh, very big, which is if you're not comfortable with who you are, they're going to carry around a perfectionist mindset of, okay, so I can't be who I am. I got to be this other person. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk about that a little more? Because I think that is huge as far as identity goes. Well, you know, what I was reflecting on is as kids are, my my older child is getting to be 12 and he's preteen, which means that he has to really be part of a bigger community, which is his peer community. He doesn't, he needs to belong. He needs to feel like he belongs, not just to his immediate family, which he belongs. He does right. not question that he belongs or not to his mother, his father, his grandfather, his grandmother, mm -hmm. his aunt and his uncles. He belongs. But now his question, his, his, his task, his developmental task is to know whether he can belong to all the sixth graders in mm. his class and mm. it's hard to find your place yes. he mm. he we are indian so ethnically we look different mm. and uh, and we are blessed enough to have a village that we grew that we are surrounded by who so ethnically diverse village yeah. and he his ta developmental task is to find his place and if his mother is all the time trying to look perfect talk perfect, laugh perfect, and act perfect, <laughs> yeah. then he may get the message from me that if he is not perfect, he's not good enough. Wow. Mm. Yeah. So I'm trying to be in my own crazy way, yeah, just be myself right. and not be perfect because, yes, I could check all the boxes of perfect mm. perfection. I could have my hair perfect, my clothes mm. perfect, but that is not a worthy goal for me. Oh, that's good. That's real good. I think all of us pursue something because of our parents. Um, growing up in a in a home with mom, dad, siblings, we learn things and we look at our parents and we're either looking for approval from our parents, we're looking for affirmation from our parents, we're looking for acceptance even from our parents, and sometimes we don't find it there, so then we go out and find it from our peers, and then we don't find it from our peers, and then we're left kind of dancing you know without a without any kind of uh, steps to dance to and so um, i know christy and i have talked uh, over the years about our the, the way our parents impacted us and then we have two people that came together with two different parents two different styles and then now we're trying to parent mm -hmm. and of course we say we'll never do what our parents do but then we just repeat the <laughs> the cycle of our parents mm -hmm. again right yeah. and so um you know seeking the approval from our mom and dad and and that kind of drives us and we've had lots of conversations I don't know. about it's that it's just like kind of what she just said like really weighed heavy on me because our daughter's 14 and i hate to talk about her but um so but i'm not aren't we talking about everything yes, i'm we not can exactly talk about talking everything. about her yeah just in I'm general talking about in general that age it's yes. just so hard to and i can see her and her friends they just want to belong right they just want to find a place and i'm always in the back of my head surely our family's enough Surely the love that they get from the aunts and the uncles and the grandparents, surely that'll be enough, but it's not like they need that peer acceptance. And, um, when you said your son, um, has to struggle with being eth ethnically ethnically different. Yeah. yeah. I can't remember exactly what you said. He doesn't struggle, but he, he knows struggle. he's different. And that's like our daughter. And so our daughter is like one of very few brown girls in this in her school 
And in the area that we brought her to in Yukon, Oklahoma, it's just makes my heart hurt that there's not more diversity in her life because I want her to see that. And she doesn't. Can I pause you? Yes. So I have a couple of thoughts about what is hard for a parent. Like, you know, if you ask me as a mother today, would you like to bubble wrap your child? My answer is going to be yes. Do they need to be bubble wrapped? The answer is no. Do I know that they don't need bubble wrapping? Yes. So my kids had, um, when like a couple of years ago, within six weeks, both had fractures. Okay. And the first fracture was in the living room, playing, not fighting. Yeah. And my older son just stepped off like a... Mm. half like like maybe just like a three-quarter feet ledge okay. from the fireplace he fell wrong and he broke both of his bones oh no both <laughs> so i am cooking dinner for a guest that is arriving and i hear this scream and i knew that this scream mm. is a scream that a right. doctor needs to attend yes. <laughs> yes. so i like put away my my mother hat because i actually had to make his arm straight mm. like it was ah. curved Ah. bad bad for mother but i just like i just my husband was in india so i was alone i had a child with curved hand or (laughs) yes and uh, i had a doctor girlfriend and her sister ring the doorbell at this moment Mm. so uh, this is my good friend and i said to her i need to go to emergency room what should we do and we made the plan in 10 seconds. Yeah. Who's going where, who's staying where. And uh, I called the emergency room because I worked at OU then, got everything sorted. Oh, one of my dear, dear friends came with me and he's, he's an orthopedic surgeon. So he actually came into the ER, which mm. he probably shouldn't have <laughs> <laughs> because he was not an ER doc, right. but he actually helped set my wow. child's arm. Wow. So he worked at OU, but he really was crossing departments right. there. He's going to get in trouble later. <laughs> he did get in trouble, I think. Actually, I don't think so, but he did. So I had like this supportive community yeah. just like jump in and we managed it. Six weeks later, child number two. I'm like, what? <laughs> this cannot be happening to me. But um, they are fine. Mm-hmm. I I had questioned myself. So should I bubble wrap them? them because you know six weeks two fractures yeah. great question to ask as a mother right what's wrong yeah no should i should just I like well, bubble, should you bubble wrap them but like what's wrong should with I the situation the should i fix this yeah. no no there was nothing that could be done in the, either of the situation it was just a freak accident right and that happens in life yeah and that's just life like we get the good and the bad and the ugly right and the reason i paused you was you know, as a mother, you might want to protect your child, but sometimes protecting your child might not be in the best long-term interest right. because feeling like you belong is a lifelong process. Do you belong to your family? Yes. Do you belong to your extended family? Yes. Do you belong to your peer group? That is a question for that age. Do you belong to your company that you work for? Do you belong to the city that you live in? Do you belong to the country that you mm that you live in? Do you belong to the world that Mm. you live in? Do you belong to the universe? Like, Mm. has universe cheated you? So those are questions that change Mm. all your life, but stay the same. 
I yeah. feel if you feel you like you don't belong, mm. it's a harder place to be at. It for sure is. And I think her, our, our daughter in particular, and even our son, you know, our, both of our children are, are adopted. And so we have in our minds this compensation that needs to happen because we don't want them to feel out of place. And so we have this, we have this mental process of they are our kids. We don't even, we forget. But then at the same time, in the back of our heads, we remember. And so we want them to have an experience like, hey, they do belong. We chose them. They get to be a part of our family. They're very loved by a whole village of people. And yet they are different. And so they're different than us. And so we we have a lot of work to do on ourselves more than more than they do because they are just happy. They're happy kids that have a great, great life and a great experience. Um, we joke with our daughter a lot because she was born in, in the jungle. And so we always tell her, you know, some parents are like, I can, I brought you in, I can take you out. We're just like, we got you out of the jungle. We can take you back, you know, so, but <laughs> we would never do that. But I mean, there is a, there is some conversation with that because um, her ethnicity is different and yet her culture and actions are ours. Right. And so she, she has a, she has a, <laughs> I think, I think her identity and her belonging has come. She's a little bit like me. And she's quite a bit like her. I mean, quite a bit <laughs> like her. And I think her thing is like, she spoke Spanish first, Spanish and English, but we came to the States and she wanted to isolate, isolate the Spanish. She didn't want to speak Spanish because she didn't want to be different. And so, um, we were like, you need to speak Spanish. You're going to, you're going to be upset that you don't speak Spanish. But she in her head was like, I want to belong. So that's part of me that I don't want to, don't want to use. Okay. So, but no, it was just interesting because that age group, like your son, that preteen, the early teens, yeah. the whole horrible puberty time. Yeah, Actually, that- it's not horrible. <laughs> so I'm a child psychiatrist, which I, means <laughs> I have enough of normal developmental uh-huh. information about kids. Most kids do fine. They do. They do. Most kids have great parents mm-hmm. looking out for them. Right. And they do fine. So sometimes our worries are bigger than I agree. what they need to be. Yeah. So the burden that you're carrying, for example, I might be your burden and not, right. not really the burden that needs to be carried. Sometimes we feel feel that we need to take on more. Right. Or maybe it feels right. But um, like, for example, I sometimes feel what would have happened if I would have stayed in India? Would that life have been better for my kids? Right. Uh. Uh, because, you know, coming to US was a choice that that I made when I was barely t- early 20s. Mm-hmm. And you really are, I don't know how you can make that big a choice, but I, I, but I'm, it has never felt wrong. Yeah. It has always felt that I belonged hmm. to America and India. Like, I don't know how to right. explain this. Like, right. I've never felt like I never, be- like, I don't know. I, I agree with you. I think, I think the cultural, you're a third per, third world person because you have India, United States, and then you have the mesh of the two into a third culture. You know, you have like a third culture experience. Um, when you grow up out of the country and then come back to the States, I did as well. Um, you've been here longer than I have and, and you have this, <laughs> <That's crazy. laughs> which is weird, but you have this cultural combination and because you have this life that's there and you still think about it and it still affects you, you come here. And then when people talk about certain problems, you're like, that's not a problem. And you just keep going, you know, it doesn't bother you because the problems, if you want to put it that way, quote unquote, 
out of the country are a lot more than we experience here. We have not experienced suffering really <laughs> in the United States. Well, I disagree actually. Well, I think every suffering is valid. Yeah. Is it first world suffering? Is it third world suffering? I feel like I cannot say my my suffering is bigger than yours. Oh, right. I just cannot say that. I have seen poverty. I have seen hardship. I've so, for example, my medical school was a government medical school, which means my education was free because my government paid for it. Mm -hmm. But the people who came to get care in that in that hospital were really poor people. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I was in a rural rural posting, and there was my day one. I had a senior officer, senior doctor, and we had a woman in labor, and he's like, oh, you do it. I was like, <laughs> uh, I have I have delivered over 100 babies. So I felt completely confident in doing it, but I still was like, I am an intern. Uh -huh. You want me to deliver this baby? And um, that particular day, my dad was there. So it was kind of, it was two hour drive from our house, and my dad is like, super protective of me like soup like i'm his princess so he's like don't worry i'll drive you i'll i'll be your chauffeur so he's there and then he's like just bursting with pride at me delivering this baby because you know it was uh, i had to like follow the procedure mm -hmm. and it was it was a couple of things that i had to do and the baby was fine the mom was fine and i mean there was just it was just like delivering a baby in your living room it was like those were <laughs> those were the amount of services we had it was not a big fancy hospital and i did not have like five backup attendants right. watching my work and right. i was like no i got this and the medical officer was like okay if she got this i i better check out early today <laughs> <laughs> that's good well i think the perspective of that experience it's hard when you come back to the states to have the understanding of what that feels like because we don't have that christy had some experiences but, but i i like what she said though because because just because you haven't had the same experiences as other people in other countries it doesn't mean your suffering isn't as true right. or isn't as painful or isn't as difficult and you know you you may look at somebody and be like oh my gosh they're so spoiled why are they worried about that it doesn't matter their pain is real yeah. and their suffering is real so I do get a little frustrated with people sometimes when they complain about things and you're like, are you kidding me? You didn't have water for three hours. Give me a break. We went weeks without water sometimes. You know what I'm saying? And so, but they don't know any different. Yeah. And so the suffering is all they know. They don't have that broad world view. And so. Well, and driving two hours to work is something what a lot of people would, don't experience here. Um, but in a, in another country, that's very normal to take yeah. three buses, two and a half hours to get to work. And you do that one way and then back, so you're in the you're in the bus longer than you are working, and so it is it's perspective. I know it's perspective and it's different, yeah. but it is kind of an interesting thing where you can get over things here, mm -hmm. especially if you've lived out of the country for a while. You can get over things faster than other people can because you're like, this is small in my perspective um, compared to other things that could be. I mean, I love that I have a different perspective. Right. I, I, I don't think it makes me better than other people, but I love that. Well, it's like, for instance, the I, traffic. I have those ideas in my mind, and I do think I experience and appreciate things differently right. because of the experiences in other countries that I've Well, had. I find myself after being here five years, the traffic 
starts to bother me. And then I have to remember, oh, this is nothing. I mean, <laughs> Oklahoma traffic is not Costa Rica traffic, not India traffic. Not Panama. It's not Panama traffic. <laughs> it's a different kind of traffic. But you get used to the convenience and then it's annoying when it's not there. Right. You know? So anyway. That's all. Christy had an experience like yours in the I hospital. Did. That I don't, I, yeah, I just, I had to help a lady give birth and I have zero medical experience. Like I'm not a doctor and we had a countrywide blackout Oh, and this lady, no cabs were picking up people. Ugh. And so she called us cause she knew we had a car and she's like, can you drive me to the hospital? I'm in labor. So we drove her to the hospital and then it was like scary because the hospital, all the lights were out. So they just had like a couple of those little fluorescent lights, uh -huh. like um, blinking, like a scary movie. Mm -hmm. And so it was this government hospital, mm -hmm. socialized medicine. Mm -hmm. And it was very... Yes. Comparatively rough. Simple. Yeah, simple. simple. Maybe that's what it is, simple. And um, so just these very blinking lights in this dark hall, and I have no idea what I'm doing. She thought she was just dropping her off. But. Yeah, so we got there, and her husband met her there, and he's like, yeah, I don't really want to do this. Can you just stay with her? And I was like, hello, this is your responsibility. But anyway, <laughs> so I walked with her, rubbed her back, you know, did all that stuff. How old stuff. were you? Um, 20, uh, 30. It was actually, the cool thing about this story, I think I was 32. 30. I think I was 32 because the cool thing about this story is I had n like Lily was nowhere in our vision. Mm -hmm. Like we knew nothing of her and this little girl was born in April or May and Lily was born in August. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of she cool got some experience. that I got to have kind of, you know, not my child, but I got to have a birth experience mm -hmm. with someone else. And then my daughter was born a couple months later, but I think I was 32. Right. It's a powerful experience. Yeah, it is. And so then it was like, I'm like, okay, she's ready. And she's like, please don't leave me. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I guess I'm go going with you. And I'm like looking at Ray going, what do I do? And he's like, just go with her. And my, and so here I go. And anyways. we have a very sterile experience here in the United States with birth and with death. Yeah. And it's very, it's very separated. Yeah. But when you live overseas, it's very close. And so with whether it's so, birth. Yeah, they did. I was just there and all the stuff was just happening, you know, yeah. and there was just concrete floors with a drain <laughs> in the middle of the room. And you know, I, I actually do appreciate both systems, though, the yeah. pluses yeah. and minuses yeah. of yeah. being in a overcrowd. Actually, the rich in India don't go to the government hospitals. So yeah. or middle class, even the middle class doesn't go. They have better places to go to. But I feel like uh, I have I love the efficiency and the the safety of the Western medicine. Like right. I would want to be sick in this country. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Um, and I would probably want to be sick in Oklahoma because I've stayed. <laughs> <laughs> so you know people. <laughs> I have stayed here for ten years. I think I I I can call five hundred people. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. Well, I think the the aspect of death, uh, which is why we wanted to talk with you, but the aspect of death internationally. Um, it feels more natural because you get to go through the process with your loved one or with someone that has died. So you get to dress them and you get to um, be with them overnight, either awake or whatever the, the practice is. But then you actually go to the cemetery and you actually bury them yourself. And so here in the United States, we're a little separated from mm -hmm. it. Like I can schedule my funeral for three weeks from now. 
Well, in Costa Rica, it was 24 hours. It was like, it had to happen quick. And so you got to go through grieving and you got to spend time with your family and friends and maybe heal some relationships because it was in your face. You had to deal with it. And so I, I appreciate that aspect of, of death, um, especially in Costa Rica. I, I don't yeah, know how it is in India. Yeah, we're protected from those kinds of things. We are also, uh, culturally, we are also very, very careful about death. Mm. Uh, we mourn for 13 days. Wow. So we have a ceremony for each day. We have mm. a ritual for each day. And rituals can get painful if you follow them just like a recipe book. Mm. But I feel like rituals are anchors that kind of ground you and help you get closure and move on with the relationship. Sometimes losing a loved one, you hold on to the pain if you are angry or if it was a traumatic death. But mm -hmm. if it was a death that you came to peace with, then uh, then it's easier to let go. So my grandfather died by suicide when I was 12. And for me, it was a traumatic loss that I really didn't comprehend when I was 12 because I guess my brain was protecting me right. from feeling the pain too deeply because children don't feel death like adults do. For them, death is more of an abstract concept than the reality of loss. Right. But uh, my my grandfather was a physician, and uh, he was a very kind and charismatic and popular physician. And he and my grandmother actually died like a year and a half before him. Uh, completely unexpected death. She had asthma and she died unexpectedly. And I think he just was broken or he just couldn't really heal from her death. And uh, he took his life like on her birthday. Wow. And that was a big loss for me because growing up, I, as I said, I was a princess mm -hmm. for my father, but also for my maternal grandfather. He was just like, I could do no wrong. Mm. Uh, if my father said something to me, he would like get on to my father. Like, mm -hmm. hey, how can you even <laughs> say anything to her? Like, she's perfect. Yeah. Uh, so he was like my protector and uh, he would like shower me with lots of love and gifts. And it was a huge loss when I lost both, when our family, not just me, mm -hmm. because it, the loss was for our entire family. They lost like the mother and father mm -hmm. for my mom and two sisters, like within a span of one and a half years. And I think everyone grieves differently, processes the grief differently. The timelines are so immaterial when you are thinking of mm -hmm. loss uh. and grief and pain. I feel like as a family, we we deal with, I mean, the loss is never in the forefront. It's been 30 plus years. Right. But there is some aspect of it that maybe haunts us like could we have done something different or uh, could we have reached out to him and we carry a, a little bit of guilt maybe mm -hmm. as to what happened or how could we have been better so it's it's I think when when you have a loss by suicide you ask some questions that are really hard to answer mm -hmm. And I think uh, this month is um, an Suicide awareness month. Prevention Awareness Month is right. September. Yes. So, so one of the things we're trying to highlight, and, and maybe one of the things in the spirit of our podcast, which is to say the quiet part out loud, some of these things I'd like to, to talk about because 
one of the things is to experience it yourself uh, with a family member, a friend, uh, or someone around. I read a stat that on your on your PowerPoint, one in four people have experienced some. Is it one in four? One in five people have experienced someone or know someone that has fifty plus and one in two. So one in two. Okay, so one in two people. <laughs> so two and four. Yeah, sorry, two and four. Thank you for my math. Yes. <laughs> Quick math but, lesson here. <laughs> have experienced or known someone that is, has taken their own life. And we, we know people really close to us, uh, family members, extended family members. One of my really good friends in 2019 uh, took his own life. And it's a, I, I like what you said, because it's not that it's in the forefront of your mind, but it seems to be, it has a place in, in the back of your mind. And maybe it's guilt. Maybe it's, um, what else could I have done? You know, so I'd, I'd like to talk with the time we have left. I'd like to talk about your work because your work specializes in a lot of this for, for right, children. You, you hear the word um, prevention and you're like, what in the world can I do? Right. Like, you know, because you're always like begging people. If you're hurting, please reach out. Please don't go through things alone. Nothing's ever so hard. We can't help you through it. You know, we say those things, but then you hear the word prevention and it's like, yeah, I want to be a part of that. How can what can I do? to help that prevention? Right. That's a great question. You know, I've been asking myself the same question. I have been doing, I've been seeing suicidal adolescents. I mean, that's my mm -hmm. day job, right? I'm a child psychiatrist. I have seen over 500 children who have come to the emergency room with overdoses. Some of them were serious, some of them were not, some of them were impulsive, some of them were planned. So this is kind of what I do right. uh, as, as my day job. And, uh, you know, I really did not frame this for myself, but I feel like my doing some of this work is maybe kind of me making peace with my grandfather's mm. loss. Mm. So kind of letting go of my guilt. It's like paying back or paying forward in the world that that someone somewhere might benefit from this and... And just maybe even if we can prevent one life being lost, that's a worthy goal. Right. That's a worthy cause to to kind of live by. Right. And uh, and you know the loss of a death of a parent or a grandparent is big for people who are struggling. It's big for even resilient people. So loss of a beloved family member hits hard and. So I feel like this is kind of what I do is in my own small way, I want to contribute to increasing awareness and uh, increasing just self-compassion to people who have had a loss mm -hmm. and modeling that in today's talk is what I am doing, which is I'm, I'm being kind to myself. I'm not angry at myself. I'm not judgmental. I'm not guilty. I'm making peace. I'm pay, making peace openly. Like it's like I'm saying the quiet part out loud. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, I really did not have a script for today's talk, and I was nervous because it meant something important to yeah. me. The first podcast I did, I was like, oh, I'll just talk, and it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They have to ask me the right questions. All right. But uh, but you said to me, you are going to like be talking, and I was like, I don't know. I'm supposed to talk <laughs> because I have a PowerPoint that's ready to go, but this right. is not a PowerPoint. Right. This is a conversation which is way harder yes. than the PowerPoint because a PowerPoint I've finished. Like I've spent 500 hours on the PowerPoint and right. 50 references. So 
I could tell you X, Y, Z, but that's not a conversation. Well, it's very academic. So a PowerPoint speaks to your mind, uh, but it doesn't really get into the mind of people and, 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 and the nuance of every situation. Um, I think one of the things that keeps coming up in my head, um, I've personally um, seen it in my own life, but then I have really close friends that live it on a, on a daily basis. So it's like what I wrote down was, how can you be sensitive and what should you say and what should you not say? Um, cause this is all about awareness, what not only for, I don't know, for, for someone that's lost someone. So okay. it's like, okay, so you're not talking about the person. So I, I will go, we'll get to the person here in a okay. minute, but it's like, if this is an awareness month, I think in November, I think in your PowerPoint, it said December, maybe November, December November is like 17th a is international survival. suicide survivor oh, day. Okay. So okay. it's November 17th. So you can have November me back. 17th. There you go. Okay. Okay. <laughs> we'll have you back in November. Oh man. But I think the thing <laughs> Did about. Did I just commit myself? Uh, no, just little by little, you just commit. Yeah. No. That's the, the beauty of this. No, but it's like there are, there's a survivor's guilt, but it's not guilt that you survived, but guilt that you didn't do enough. So, so when you're, so when you're working with someone or talking with someone or befriending someone that has a loss, there's gotta be a wrong way to do it. And then there's gotta be a, a, maybe a better way to do it. Maybe not a right way, but a better way. Because I think what most of our tendency is, I'm just not going to talk about it. I'll keep quiet and let them suffer on their own, which is probably not helpful. No. Hmm. You know, as you were talking right now, I was thinking about what you just said a few minutes ago is that we sometimes carry burdens that are not ours to carry. Yeah. For example, if I have, my child is struggling and he's depressed or anxious and he feels so alone and lost and cannot seek help that he's he does something impulsive. And usually in children, they're extremely impulsive. Like that's the nature, nature that's the name of the game. Mm -hmm. Children, adolescence, impulsivity. That's kind of what they do. So sometimes if a child is impulsive and feeling depressed, the window between, hey, life sucks, let me kill myself, is as short as five minutes. Wow. Five minutes. Wow. So what could a parent, I mean, you are not, they're not babies, they're not toddlers, they're not going to be supervised. I mean, no child needs to be bubble wrapped or supervised 24-7. There is, it is practically impossible to bubble wrap your 16-year-old who might be depressed. And I feel like sometimes parents do everything right and yet bad things happen. Right, right. right. Yeah. Like, it's not that you did not do enough. Exactly. It's like your child was born with a heart defect and they were playing basketball and they collapsed during a game. And you go back and say, hey, how did I miss the heart defect? You really don't. Yeah. You don't, uh, you don't really torture yourself over that question. But mm. if your child mm. dies by suicide, the guilt, the shame, the stigma, the anger, mm. the frustration, the helplessness is so much bigger than when they die of a congenital heart disease. Yeah, that makes sense. So you've walked with families. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming you've walked with families on both sides. I'm just assuming, but you know, families that are, are dealing with it currently to prevent their children. And then those that have actually experienced loss. Um, what, what do you say to someone that has experienced the loss? Because, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. We've had conversations ourselves. I don't know how you ever get over it. Oh. I don't even know if that's a thing. I don't even know if that's the goal. Right. You know, I never tell anyone to get over it. Yeah. And I just sit in pain with them. Yeah. 
So, so, you know, I could give them a recipe of getting better, but I don't think that's helpful. That doesn't right. really stick. Because if they wanted a recipe to get better, they can just Google it. Hmm. Right. We have enough resources right now to Google everything we need. So it's not information we are lacking. Maybe we are lacking compassion and connection. Yeah. Uh, and we always will lack that. So if you think of how powerful connection is, it's like if you're lonely, it's as bad as smoking for your heart and your mental health. Hmm. So I would rather smoke than be lonely. And that is, I've never touched a cigarette. I mean, I've touched it, but (laughs) I would never smoke. But it's kind of the way we are wired as human beings. We are wired to be connected Hmm. and we are wired not to like be survive. Like we are wired to, to thrive in a community. We are wired to live in a village. We are wired to create our villages and clans and loyalties. And then we are wired to fight with other villages because our village is the best. Yeah. And uh, we, are, we are just wired to, to be who you are and uh, having technology doesn't change much of it. Yeah. So this um, last year and a half or whatever the dates are, when we went into isolation as, as a community, did I've heard and I assume things, but I'm curious in your line of work, did you see an increase with children and the suicidal thoughts and, and dealing with those kind of things? Did you see an increase with that during the times of isolation or not so much? That's a great question. So acutely people were in the fight or flight mode. So they really tried to cope. They figured out how their day-to-day life was mm-hmm. going to be. They figured out how kids were going to school. And everybody kind of just tried to survive. Right. I feel like we are going to have, 10 years down the line, we are going to have increased rates of isolation, depression, mm-hmm. anxiety, poor coping. Just because some of these routines have broken down. Like my nine-year-old was angry at me one day and said, Mom, I have had so many losses in covid And I was like, what? What's your loss? You're playing electronics more than ever. How could you even lose anything? And he's like, I used to play sports. Now I don't. I love basketball. Now I have not played. I used to love soccer. I have not played. And, you know, as a mother, I was trying to do the best I can. And we had some social interactions. They were in school. They were... We were doing the best we can and yet he felt the loss and was able to even articulate it so clearly like he's like I didn't have a birthday party and that was a big Mm. loss because his friends would like his school friends he had a birthday party yeah (laughs) but right but uh, he did not have the school birthday that he Mm. usually has and he did not attend any of school birthdays that that was his life his routine right so really I feel like we are going to see five two, three, five years down the line, difficulties that started in the pandemic, but are not clearly identifiable. Yes, and there have been some kids who are doing, some sicker kids and sicker families are more suicidal. But the healthier families and more resilient kids 
are probably going to have more downstream effects mm. that's that is hard to it's like a stressor right it can make you stronger but it can also kind of shape you in a unique way yeah interesting so if you if there's a family that has experienced this kind of loss what what's the your suicide loss you a, mean. a suicide loss yes uh, with an adolescent or with a family member or whatever do you is there a way to approach or is there a way to to be there without actually being annoying you know what i'm saying it's like because uh, i think there's a tendency to be like over overly attentive and then there's a tendency not to do anything at all and so is there a an appropriate amount of attention you know everyone's grief is unique every family's grief is unique and people mourn openly or they mourn quietly so sometimes people who mourn openly need more support openly people who mourn quietly need maybe more routines and more structure and just take years to process some people process a loss in 6 months some people take years to process a loss but they still function well like like mm-hmm. if i lost one of my children i think i'm not sure how i will cope because that's like the the mother's any mother's worst nightmare is to die before her children mm-hmm. but but really my grief would look different than my husband's right and we would probably need to grieve in our own way and kind of just where i started would be important like if i was struggling with anxiety depression right at the beginning and then i have a big loss it's going to affect me more okay than if i was doing okay and then something really bad happened i might have more resources to cope mm. with my loss So yeah. I might you might just start like with a bank. Mm. How big was my bank of emotional wellness right. and my connections, and how much money did I have to withdraw? Right. That makes a lot of sense. But I want to direct back to prevention. You keep okay. asking. Well, I'm trying I... to finish this side up and then go back to that. Okay. But let's go. Let's go ahead and go to prevention because I think if this is a month of awareness and mm-hmm. prevention. Okay. And I, and I think that's why it's hard is how are we supposed to be aware? You know, how are we and I know that there's certain signs to look for and um and you can read about those things, but I guess just what's your advice on that from your experience? What do we do about awareness and prevention? That's a great question. It's so awareness and prevention are are kind of multiple levels, right? There is something like universal pre- excuse me there's universal prevention it's like getting a vaccine you give it to everybody that's universal prevention and then the second level of prevention is where you oh, you kind of do it for high risk groups like hey this is this is a refugee this is uh, army veterans with ptsd okay. Okay. the these people already have had a lot of loss and they are going okay. to be more vulnerable So that's kind of the second level of prevention. And third level of level of prevention is you see a child clearly isolating to their room, not smiling, mad all the time, snapping back at you. You're not even able to like feel like you have a connection. You don't feel like they might be able to walk the five steps it takes from their room to your room 
when they are in a crisis in the middle of night when you are sleeping mm. you're not going to put cameras on your child i mean that's like bubble wrapping <laughs> you're not doing that right. but but you are also if you as a parent feel stuck like hey i i just i just worry i think the best thing parent can do is get help because then you're not alone in carrying this huge burden because sometimes parents are really alone because of the shame how so because if my child is depressed i must have failed as a parent i must have failed in communicating my love i must have failed so 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 this fear of maybe i'm a failure maybe holds back some people from getting connected to their pastor to their friends to community elders to the village around them to grief counselors right. to therapists to i i mean i feel like support doesn't have to be in form of western medicine structured psychotherapy mm-hmm. cognitive behavior therapy i mean not everyone needs that and i should not i'm going to qualify that because i'm a psychiatrist <laughs> so it's like if i have cancer you should go to an oncologist right, right. right. if you have a suicidal child you should not take them to the oncologist <laughs> <laughs> yes don't take your ch- your suicidal child to the oncologist <laughs> well i mean if you okay so is there if we're talking about prevention is there something that a parent can be aware of and speak into their children if they do see oh they are isolated they are vulnerable they have gone through some some trauma they are depressed so what are some things that a parent can do as far as prevention goes is it therapy or is it words of affirmation i mean what is the what is the suggested steps so good way to support a child who's struggling is figure out what your supports are first so always put your oxygen mask first mm. because if you are not i mean if you are dying you cannot help the mm. the child who's dying yeah so put on your oxygen mask first and your oxygen mask could be a drink after work or it could be a friend that you meet once a week it could be your mother that you talk to once every other week it could be your sister in another town it could so it you have to figure out your own oxygen mask after you are healthy in your your own self you have to figure out what does my child like to do what are their strengths and how can they feel like valuable valuable or that they belong so who are their friends who are their teachers who are their uh, like big brother big sister mentors like who are role models for my child who my child may not think i make sense but here the the friend who's 3 years older who's reasonable yeah. might speak the language that my child does and so finding those supports that's a little bit tricky sometimes because if your child is completely not shutting you out it's a harder place to be at as a parent mm-hmm. so so i think kind of finding that community around your child and strengthening the community around your child that will protect the child is what might be helpful you know it's sometimes hard because kids are impulsive right they drive at 100 miles an hour and are they thinking 
maybe not because i wouldn't drive anything 100 miles an hour mm. uh i wouldn't drive into a tree i would wear a seat belt mm. i would not drink and drive i mean all of those things that i wouldn't do because i'm older kids do right is it because they're crazy no uh actually teenagers are hardwired to take risk from an evolutionary perspective because that makes our genetic it's complicated concept so i'm going to slow down because this is a complicated concept so even in chimpanzees even in monkeys even, uh, like these complicated societies the teenagers are impulsive and they are crazy and they go outside the clan to to find the other chimpanzee girl when the clan mother wants them to stay in the clan and marry in breed but for genetic diversity it's important risk taking is evolutionarily protective in the long run does it have a risk associated with risk taking yes mm-hmm. but it is not all bad otherwise it would not have been evolutionarily conserved so that's kind of neuroscience of risk taking right so kids are impulsive they need to be they have to try out things that feel crazy to their parents because that's who they need to be their own person like they need to be their own person and not the not a replica of their mother or father mm-hmm. i mean i would love for my children to be exact copies of me <laughs> i don't know <laughs> <laughs> they're not, not even sure. the same gender so that's a lost cause <laughs> that's funny that's funny but but i mean i i really want them to be kind and right. yeah. think about others right. and be very respectful and all of those and they might like oh i need to find my own path right. which may not include these right away yeah. so i'm going to be kind well, of- and when you say children or or child or kid what time what what age group are we talking about because i think the developmental of the brain the the risk aversion kind of comes at 25 or something so are we talking about um children as in you know 0 to 15 0 to 20 0 to 25 what what do we what what age group are we talking about that's a great question so kids who are really depressed and struggling start having suicidal thoughts as young as 5 wow they wow. never do anything because they're cognitively not smart enough to actually execute a suicide plan mm. but these are really sick kids yeah kids who are kind of like within the norm maybe have more risk taking i think around 12 13 teenage years is the risk taking years and also you know also a time where they need to belong and feel rejected by the society or they they have um, to do what's called identity formation which is a which is a developmental task given by uh i'm going to throw out a name <laughs> eric fine. erickson So it's essentially they're trying to figure out who they are and they definitely cut the psychological umbilical cord. Uh-huh. And they're kind of free floating crazies. Yeah. And you cannot br- bubble wrap it because actually that's detrimental to their identity formation. Because if you worry about your child that tells them I am not worthy of confidence, which is a little scary. So you may be freaking out in your head but I wouldn't tell that to the child <laughs> which it's hard I know yeah. it's kind of hard to to kind of hold your worry inside yourself but you're not 
giving doing them any big favors by saying how crappy they are doing right right like they are failures in life and they should do better i mean yes uh, they should do better but if you just kind of hammer that message over and over again they start to believe it and guess what the fear becomes a reality right so you have to parents have to sometimes learn to hold on to not all fears but some fears they have to like just keep quiet and not say it out loud all the time hmm. 24/7 negatively yeah like you're never going to amount to anything and i'm freaking out in my head but i am going to say it 24/7 doesn't help right well i think the the thing that you're talking about with as far as children go they're trying to figure out their boundaries and this is what the tendency of most parents is most parents when a child is a toddler baby toddler they're trying to get them to walk trying to get them to brush their own teeth trying to get them to comb their own hair and take care of themselves dress themselves and so we're giving them all sorts of freedom when they're infants toddlers you know before they turn 10 but then when they turn 12 we say i'm going to take over control and i'm going to protect you from now on because you're not making the right choice instead of when they're really young tighten the grip and as they get older you open your hand and give more freedom because otherwise if we do it reverse if we have a lot of freedom when they're young and then when they're adolescents you take away their freedom we're confusing the process uh we want them to be free and do their own thing except we don't want them to because we really don't think they can do it and so without even saying it we reduce their their freedom well they're going to be free anyway when they turn 18 19 when they leave home and then they're going to make a mess of their life because now for the first time they have true autonomy you know and so if we can have like a free environment while they can make mistakes at home it's okay makes make mistakes as you're going while you're at home and people still love you <laughs> instead of going out into the world and making mistakes where people are going to throw you in jail you know mm-hmm. so it's a great point so more freedom le- more more restrictions younger on right and more freedom I mean, that's with what supervision. I think I don't know that yeah with supervision right with supervision so supervised freedom as you get older and right. uh and we're relinquishing the control um from parents because if a kid in 5 minutes you said 5 minutes that's amazing to me that if a, a decision could be made in 5 minutes they would alter their whole life that's just not obviously as an adult we don't that doesn't process it's uh, terrifying to yeah, me yeah it doesn't process because <laughs> no actually you, this is not just kid data this is quite, so there are some people i mean this is data f- that's from suicidal autopsies wow. like oh, wow. so sometimes you just so you're just so depressed that you're not thinking straight wow. it's like you're having these dark glasses yeah. that are part of your vision you just everything's dark and so in that dark moment in that dark place you really not you just you think suicide is a solution yeah it's the hopelessness that's the worrisome part of mm-hmm. it because you're so hopeless that there is just no solution to your problem which life is so fleeting and no mm-hmm. there is no real problem because we all are going to die which is the real problem problem right so how can any other problem be bigger than the final problem but for most of us i mean we have uh, we have such cultural expectations we have such family expectations we a lot of self worth depends on depends on checking boxes huh. that you have been told to check all your life and if you check 9 and not the 10th box then you're not good enough there are some people who have checked all 10 boxes and they are like mm, i'm not good enough so it's it's hard to feel good enough because it's hard to feel good enough for most of us 
it's hard to feel that you belong for most of us and it's not it's a universality of the pain that we share it's not something that has just started it's not some it was always there i so, feel so i wonder if with with home home life is being honest and actually saying the quiet part out loud to your kids and say hey you're struggling with this so do i um, instead of you'll figure it out because i figured it out when they really we didn't really figure it out you know we're still working through the same stuff um the other thing that's interesting to me is that we we tend to say when someone takes their own life that we didn't see it coming, like it was a sh surprise. And you'll interview people around them and they're like, we had no idea. And if it's a five minute window, even in adults, then obviously it's Not almost, always is it five. But yeah, I'm but just I mean, saying but it it's could, a common could, thread. Yeah, yeah, it could be. So it's like, okay, so it almost seems fatalistic to be like, how can we help? How can we prevent? How can we walk with someone that is depressed because uh, depression Actually, is let on me the pause rise you. let me yeah. correct the five minute window thing sure so in adults if you have if you're drunk then the five minute window applies yeah that makes sense but kids are drunk without <laughs> <laughs> without alcohol without alcohol because they're impulsive so yeah. right, right. sorry kids i should not well, say kids. teenagers yeah. i i'm i'm not uh, qualifying kids as kids right so let's just Think of teenagers because teenagers are drunk because they really are thinking with their emotional brain right. and not their frontal brain. Right. With adults, when they drink alcohol and 50 to 90, 80% of people who drink can do stupid things. Like, I mean, the, the, when yeah. you do a, a psychological autopsy of a person who has died by suicide, you will often find unless they've thoroughly planned it for months and years mm -hmm. or uh, the and there's some people that have done that yes you can see a very very planned suicide attempt and you can also see an impulsive one the impulsive ones usually have drugs involved mm -hmm. so well i was just thinking when you said that you know jokingly saying that the teenagers are already drunk well what we're seeing is teenagers who don't need the help but then they are bringing alcohol and drugs into the mix. So that's making them even less Worse. in control. Yes. Like more compulsive because they were already compulsive to begin with. And now you bring all the other substances into the mix. And it's almost like how can they can't think straight. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's dear to me in my heart is we have adopted kids. And I've read that adoptees are higher likely to take their own life than kids that are not adopted. And I don't know if that's true. I don't know if you've heard that or if it's you've true. walked with uh, families like that. And so for us, it's even more heightened, you know, like if the chance of an adoptee um, is more likely to be impulsive in that aspect, or even more likely to develop a, a sense of less worth or maybe an identity crisis, man, that's something that we, Again, I'm going we to are aware. Reassure you, I'm going to say that Good enough parenting is all what most kids need, adopted right. and non-adopted. Right. So if you are a good enough parent, which I think you are, <laughs> that's my professional opinion. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> yes, that helps. We did it, baby. <laughs> 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 well, I think the thing is, in, in the adoption world, there's a lot of adoptees that deal with a lot of emotional trauma because of their experience as adoptees. Um, whether they were adopted older or younger infants, maybe it's an identity crisis, maybe it's a um, maybe it's a, um, a a communal tie to like, oh, I don't look like everybody else. You know what I'm saying? So I'm not I'm not really sure exactly where it lands. But one of the things that that um, maybe that's where we've overcompensated is, 
man, we want our kids to feel as comfortable, as loved, as, as, as developed as possible, you know, give them the best chance. Um, even though they individually have to make some choices, you know, they're going to have to adapt to the world that they they live in. Um, and we, we're, we're believers. We have a relationship with God and, and our relationship with God is a spiritual one. And so the spiritual formation of it is we trust that God has a plan for them as well. Um, and he has allowed them to be in our family. So if he's allowed them to be in our family, he's also going to equip us to do the best that we can do, even though we're imperfect, you know, we're, we're going to fail sometimes. So anything to add, Christy? <laughs> No. You said it well. So, but uh, there's one other thing that I was going to ask you about because I've 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 heard this and read this before, and I know we're almost out of time. But uh, oh man, okay, time went by really fast. Sorry. The, he needs there's... to be actually beside him all day, every no. night, just showing you what time it is. Just okay. showing you what time. It is. That is true. Uh, I've been speaking. <laughs> but for you a know long that time. would defeat the ramble purpose. <laughs> there True. <you> go. <laughs> True. Um, the, the one of the last things maybe that uh, that I'd like to ask you is. I've heard that in order for a successful attempt or a suicide attempt to happen, there has to be three things that are that are available or are common. And this is what I've heard, so you can correct me and maybe tell me the truth, but um, an opportunity, uh, like the opportunity is there, a motive, and then a lack of fear of death. And so if those three, three things happen to line up, then there's more apt to to someone impulsively doing it so i don't know what you're clinically and maybe your experience and the people you've talked to what are the common denominators as far as in someone taking their life and this is for adults so maybe it doesn't apply to adolescents i'm not sure the framework is similar to adolescents and adults you need to have like access right so i'm really really hopeless right now is my gun right by my bedside? Mm. Is my gun in a locked mm -hmm. place with bullets somewhere else? Mm -hmm. Is my gun having a protective sleeve with pictures of my beloved ones? Mm. Tell, reminding me, hey, there is a reason to live. Mm. You are not alone when you die. Wow. You, there is a death of the family. There, there is a death in the family. So I'm thinking of access is a very important thing because when you are vulnerable and you do not feel like you can get help, that gun looks really good hmm. Hmm. or that alcohol bottle looks good or that opiate pill bottle looks good or that car that you're driving. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so access. Access. The second is feeling hopeless, like, I have such unsurmountable problems that there is no way I can solve them. So just this hopelessness, like just, oh, I, I cannot bear to live. Mm. It's not the fear or the lack of fear of death. I feel like it's more, I cannot bear to live. Mm. The, pain, the psychological pain is so big that I cannot bear to live. And the third thing is, so we talked about access, we talked about hopelessness. The third thing would be a psychiatric, diagnosable psychiatric condition, which have major depressive disorder is present in 80 to 90% of completed suicides. Mm -hmm. uh, drug use, so all of these things. And I have um, developed a teaching tool, which is more for doctors who are front lines or social workers, and I'm happy to share my tool with you. 
uh, I'm not making any money. It's already <laughs> in the public realm, published. <laughs> so I will uh, send you yeah. my teaching tool. It's not for. It's not for. For a parent, because it looks at uh, the suicide risk factors, and it looks at protective factors, and it's a big thing if you are not a professional. But it could, it could highlight uh, things that are that increase the risk and that mm -hmm. reduce the risk. It's always about risk mitigation. So, do you keep your gun by your bedside? That would not be a safe thing to do if you're depressed. Do you, if your child is depressed, do you have the gun right in front of them? Do they know the code to the safe. to the safe? Mm -hmm. So those are things mm. to think about and uh, and reflect on. That's good. So you talked about hopelessness as one of the as one of the uh, factors. Uh, just to end up uh, with as many or as few words as you want to. What is the hope? Uh, that you want to give anyone listening, maybe they're dealing with um, some depression, maybe they have a family member that's dealing with depression, or maybe they've recently gone through uh, fa losing a family member to suicide. So what's the hope that we can or offer? Or someone who's contemplating. Uh, or, yeah, someone that's yeah. contemplating, yeah. So what's the hope? Because we can give some preventative stuff, which is great, the mitigation of, of the opportunity. I mean, that's, and the access is great. Um, but there's a, there's an idea where there's a will, there's a way. And so where someone... There's some things that are not preventable because someone's going to try until they succeed. And so where's the hope uh, that we can offer um, anybody that's listening that, that needs hope? Well, the hope is that we all belong. Hmm. Whatever color of our skin, whatever language we speak, we all belong to the world, to the universe. We were meant to be here. We we. Our birth is just, I mean, I don't know. That's too philosophical. Let me do, <laughs> dial back the philosophy. <laughs> that's good. Because the kids will be like, what is she talking about? What are you about? doing, mom? <laughs> but there you she fixed goes. the laugh, but then you went philosophical. No? <laughs> yeah, there she goes talking crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. That's funny. No, but, you know, hope is that we are all worthy. We all belong. And we are all in our own way contributing we can contribute in a meaningful way. It may not be, it may not be the way that the world values. It may not be seen and appreciated by everybody. It may not be even the mainstream contribution. But I think to have that faith that, that we are valuable, we can contribute and we are worthy and we belong mm -hmm. would be a life lesson for most so of even us. Even if it looks different than what you thought it was going to mm -hmm. look like, there mm -hmm. there is hope there. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I told my daughter when we were recently talking about suicide is, honey, if you can learn anything through this, just know that nothing so bad, like nothing is so bad that's going on that we can't work through it. And I know that sometimes people get to a place where they can't, they can't even grasp that. But I was just trying to just tell her, I know that something might happen, that you might get in trouble. There might be something that would be disappointing. But nothing, nothing, nothing that you're ever going through is ever so bad that we can't work through it. Yeah. And, but, but the idea of, well, things aren't looking like I thought they were supposed to look. 
you know, I I don't know. That's good. Because we have you know that idea. ties us back to the value of flowers episode. Yes, it does. <laughs> it does. There's it's interesting because perspective is everything. The perspective of where you are is probably more beautiful and better than you think it is. Um, and so the for me when I think about hope. Um, for me personally, uh, hope is in my family and my relationships and my purpose in life. Uh, God has given me this time to live. Okay, so let me make the most of it. Uh, my relationship with him, uh, but also my relationship with others. We're all connected. I think last time we talked about our connectivity and the more we're connected to other people, the more we have a purpose to live. And, and I think hope is, I love that you said we all belong. Some of us don't even believe that, mm. but we still belong. Yeah. And so belonging is very, very important. And, and I would, I would also add this walk with somebody. Don't, don't isolate. Isolating is a, is a temptation we all have. Um, especially when there's things not going right, it's better if I just go by myself that we should fight that tendency. Um, let's, let's not isolate. Let's, let's gravitate okay. towards people. And, and then the other side of that is when someone comes to you, yeah, be, be open and receiving. So it takes a lot for some people yeah. to really swallow their pride search someone out and say, I'm struggling. So when someone actually has the guts to do that, I think it's our responsibility to be aware, not so self-absorbed in our daily life, but to be a place where we can be aware and we can hear when someone says, I'm struggling, and then we can be available. Yeah. You know, I'm going to extend that thought of yours. So if I come to you and tell you I'm struggling, you would instinctively want to help me and fix me. But sometimes being a witness to my struggle Mm. is respecting me more because you're not giving me band-aids. Yes, just walk with you. Be sad with you. Just be sit in pain with me. Yeah. Wow. So it is what I do. And so it's not an easy thing, so I don't do too much of it because self-care is important for all of us, we all need to put our oxygen masks right, first. Right. So you said early on, and I keep saying we're going to wrap it up. We are, I promise. <laughs> you said early on the, the self-care, but you also said you can't, I mean, we all have a tendency to pick up burdens that are not our own. Um, and I think even as as people, you said it just now, when people come to you, you want to pick up their burden. Um, there's only so much you can do. There's only so many burdens you can carry. And I think the guilt that we carry after someone goes through trauma or someone goes through some kind of pain and possibly even takes their life, the guilt is I've picked up their burden and I've made it my own. There's a place for that. But then also, if you're if you're not caring for yourself, if you're not aware of how that's affecting you, it's really detrimental to your to your own life. It really is. Um, I can only carry so many burdens, you know, and I think a lot of us are carrying a bunch of luggage. You and I met up in the Rockies. You didn't have a luggage. You didn't have a, a, a luggage you were carrying. I didn't either, thank goodness, because we wouldn't have made it to where we were <laughs> if we would have been carrying the luggage. And I think a lot of us want to carry luggage, and then we wonder why we can't succeed because we're carrying too many lu- too much luggage. I agree. And sometimes when someone is in pain, the best thing you can do is to be just a witness. Mm. And being a witness is way harder than... Mm. Being, the, being a witness is one of the hardest things mm-hmm. you can do because you feel good when you help someone yeah. and that's the purpose of your life. But some pains are just meant to be witnessed. It's okay not to be able to help, but just to... Yeah, the, or uh, even 
just sometimes if you help, you're giving a solution, which may be for you, not for them. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is real yeah, good. That's the that quiet part true. out loud right there. Yeah. A lot of our help is more for us than for them. And that's right. a, we sh- that's a, that's right. a good place to, I think we need to, to pause for to today yeah, and sh- we can keep talking, but <laughs> uh, I have to go pick up my kids Yes. and she, uh, Christy yes. has to go pick up her yes. kids. So mother's first family yes. first. That's right. That's good. So, um, I forgot to say this early on, we're drinking coffee. It's called Genesis blend <laughs> from uh, rabbit hole coffee ramble slingers. from coffee slingers thank you coffee slingers.com slash rabbit hole ramble swapna thank you once again for coming yes you already you. said it we heard it it's recorded november you're gonna come back so <laughs> <laughs> i've been telling swapna that she's gonna have her own podcast eventually so yes. we'll i we'll think Ray's, i'm going to do my podcast through ray right now <laughs> there you go there you go <laughs> we'll do it well it's been a it's been good thank you so much for for your encouragement also your wisdom uh, your experience it's been yeah. very very helpful for us and uh we'll have you back once again so that's the rabbit hole ramble it's a podcast where we say the quiet part out loud ruben miss you bye <laughs> well thank you for doing this i think both of you are doing something that's incredible in some ways because it takes courage to stand apart and it's not always easy to do things differently mm-hmm. yeah so i appreciate the work you're doing and we all belong and we all mm-hmm. contribute and thank you for what you're doing thank you thank you, thank you so much appreciate thank it thank you for taking your time out of your busy schedule